Broadsheet Radio Network. and welcome to another episode of Shared History. It's bad bitch o'clock, yeah, it's shared history. I like it. I like that we're getting musical. Like, we've run out of taglines. The taglines are... My run. knees really hurt, but I'm still 32. I'm oh, old. man. Yeah, I, I... I've been thinking about that lately. It's like, it was supposed to be us stealing famous brands you know hey sponsor hmm. us but you know how i love a jingle also like there's only so many brands that's what <laughs> this world is really missing is natalie more. what what's what season are we in we're in season six see wait oh i thought we were in season five. Oh my gosh look at us we're in time flies six and yeah we're in so episode 83 Three. That's insane. So, so yeah. So I'm 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 songing. I'm singing it up. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah, Honestly, it's a good way to start this particular episode too. Listeners, uh, we've come at you hot and heavy this season. Emphasis on the heavy. So we thought we would just like lighten things up a little bit with I asked Cass for to choose between some kind of themes. For this week's episode and the half-baked one that I sent her way that she signed on to was phrased as just general shenaniganery. And I'm very excited to find out what Cass's story is because I asked her a clarifying question just so that I could kind of choose something to complement it or that wasn't like too much of the same region or whatnot. And I'm pretty sure I said I had two stories prepared and one was kind of everywhere and one was like pretty North America centric. And she said, mine's neither of those. And one of those was everywhere. So <laughs> no, this- no, here's how it went. You gave a couple options and then you said, or just uh, general shenaniganry, which in my mind was like, I got nothing, pick whatever. I was like, oh, general shenaniganry. And then she goes, okay, I've got like a Eurocentric or like a North American-y. And I was like, mine's none of those. And she's like, well, where is yours? Just an, as, as an idea. I was like, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> I will say that the Eurocentric topic was like Eurocentric, but also kind of everywhere. So when you said mine's neither of those, I was like, is this story in space? <laughs> the only thing that's left. I will tell you, it is kind of a final frontier oh well let i'm strapping in i'm getting i'm getting in my history machine where are we going when are we going natalie let me take you on an adventure please and i steal that from you because you texted me earlier today and you're just like i can't wait (laughs) to take you on an adventure i was like oh you hold your fucking horses i'm almost positive almost 100 positive you know what this topic is and because I was trying to find my notes and I typed in 
the subject in our in my drive and oh, our and drives are shared spreadsheet came up and something said natalie's super secret spreadsheet i was like it's in there so i know you know it okay that doesn't mean i actually know anything about it it just means that i put it on the list Natalie, I'm here to tell you about the story of colonizers. I've never heard of them. Coming into a foreign land, untouched, untarnished, trying to take over. And it is the one of the few times that the colonizers lose. <gasps> White, Euro, Western colonizers. And they fucking lose. Get them out of here. You ready for my general shenaniganry? Oh, lay it on me because I think I know what it is. I'm here to take you post-World War I to the year 1931-32 to the Emu Wars. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Cass, I can't begin to explain to you how perfect our topics complement each other. Take me, take me and fly me home, baby. <laughs> Emus fly together, even though we can't fly. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. I did Google for my notes, and I literally, the only thing that popped up was Natalie's super, I was like, shit, she wanted to do this one. Nope, I just needed somebody to do it. I'm very happy to you. <laughs> so if you've looked up, it, I, it's like popular on TikTok, or like there's a bunch of bits going around on Instagram it's or something a very, now. It's amongst history memes. It is, yeah. uh, it is a popular touch point if you will i saw it on well i say instagram because i'm old and i watch tiktoks on instagram um but it was a it was a video about some australian who was like yeah we lost lost a war to the emus and i he's su such a goofy personality that i thought it was like maybe a like a weird bit mm -hmm. i was like so mm -hmm. real this feels like it it's australia it could be real and it's real you guys um it literally, if you go to Wikipedia, the very first sentence says, the Emu War, also known as the Great Emu War, mm -hmm. which means it's literally in history books and it has multiple names. Yep. Listen, give the emus what they deserve. They deserve to be recognized like for their greatness. World War One is called World War One, or the war to end all war. Like, when you have... A, a colon subtitle to your war if your war has an real. aka then you legit and especially in the word great the great emu the war great emu war i'm sorry i i got i got excited let's let's get into it i'm very excited i only know the broad strokes of this so yes. it's great so World War One happens. Natalie, World War One was between the years of nineteen seventeen and thirty-one. I honestly don't know. I was asking you. <laughs> nineteen fourteen to nineteen eighteen. Apparently, I made it a lot longer. <laughs> I was like, "Damn, it was a long war," but still. Anyway. So after World War One, we're we're in the 1930s. So it's it's been a little bit, but a bunch of right. Um, I'm an idiot. I know that the war ended before 
the second one? The, well, <laughs> yeah, that would that would give me away. Because Natalie, the uh, in, in Europe at least, the second world World War was when uh, 1935 or 8-ish through like 1940 something. Again, I don't know. I was hoping you would know. We're historically bad at things. <laughs> so it was 1939 to 1945. Oh, I was um, close. I yeah, you were. So. I literally knew that you were going to have to pause and I, I, I Google quick. <laughs> uh so it was it was a while after the first world war we're in 19 uh 1932 and a lot of discharge veterans were given land by the australian government because you know it was australia's to give um yeah naturally yeah we're we're in like western australia we're in the bush we're in desolence and there's not a lot around uh and so these soldiers, these discharged soldiers were given plots of land to farm and they were growing a lot of, a lot of like grain, I think wheat and whatnot, a bunch of other stuff, but it, it's a harsh environment. Like it's not very welcoming to agriculture and no one fucking lives in Western Australia. Like if you were to look at a population map of Australia, it is the Eastern coast and nothing else. <laughs> so there's a lot of expanse. There's a lot of untouched land. There's a lot of emus. I see untouched land and I think there be emus. Actually, that's well, how you should draw a map of Australia is everybody, all the populations on the Eastern coast. And yeah. And you just circle the rest of it. And you say there be emus. There be emus. So they get all of this land they start farming it and propagating it and everything and they i mean they've got an emu infestation the emus are walking into their land they're eating their crops they're like yo colonizers thank you for all of the food you know usually people come in and they just try to decimate and like thank you for the food this is it's like the first Thanksgiving, you know, how everything was great and we helped everyone and they mm -hmm. helped us. Yes, that is, that's the story I know. Also like the first Thanksgiving, shit went down. They started, again, decimating these crops. So people built fences, but they were getting through. So in 1932, in December, or it, it started in November, these veterans petitioned to the Australian government to have the Australian army, like the, the actual government army to come to Western Australia and kill the emus. But there were 20,000 emus in this expanse of land. That's a lot of emus. And they had, they had to like pitch this. They're like, guys, they're like, we're not gonna give you the fucking army. Like guys, it's a bunch of you know, birds, like build the fence. And they did, they started building, I mean, there's a, there was a I've talked about it in one of our episodes, um, the rabbit proof fence, it's this really long fence to keep rabbits out of, um, out of farms. And it like covers like the length of Australia, I think. So they started building all these fences, but emus are gonna emu. And they're like, fuck that shit. I mean, emus are on average five foot seven. Cass, and how that, tall are you? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I am five foot six. 
Okay, could you climb a fence? Oh, yes. Then emus, Absolutely. Can, emus can easily climb a fence. Or bust it down because them legs, them gams is strong. I have arms, so that helps me. But you know what? Do you know how fast emus can run? Real heckin' fast. 31 miles per hour. That's real heckin' fast. Yeah, they are the second largest flightless bird. I believe the first is the ostrich. So yeah, so, and these guys traveled in packs and there's 20,000 of them. They're, they're fucking, first of all, they're really fucking smart. They're wily and they travel in packs. So these farmers kind of pitched it to the Australian government and they're like, no, like, like you gave us this land. You need us to farm and all that shit. Send us an army. They go, great. We'll give you an army. And they, they actually declared war on the emus. That's how you get yourself an AKA. Yeah. Yep. In on December 10th of 1932. And it was in it was during the Great Depression too. So there was I guess there was a Great Depression in the thirties in Australia too. Um they needed all of this all of this food and everything. So they send the military out and they give you know, they've got, you know, their big trucks and their tanks and they've got these um crank machine guns, you know, kind of one of the early mm-hmm. first um multi round guns that they have. And they're like, all right, let's go. We'll probably just, you know, it's like fish in a barrel, shoot them out, get done, be out of here. They were at war for three months before they gave up. They're like, fuck this. So it turns out these emus travel in packs, but they're also using tanks and trucks over the Western Australian expanse. These fuckers are fast. They are organized and Literally in an article I read, they said the emus deployed guerrilla war tactics. So they would just kind of like run away, ambush, get around over here. We don't know where they are. They couldn't find the emus, first of all. So once they started like killing a few, the emus were like hiding and then would like go steal some wheat and then like machine guns come at them and they're like matrix dodging them. And the Australian government said, no, we can't. The land is yours. We, we can't afford this war against the emus. Yes. Casualties of the Australian army was, was zero. I, I Thank you for putting that in your notes. Um, no casualties on Australia's front. Good for them. Um, out of the 20 thousand plus emus they killed as as little as 50 birds um though other accounts range from 200 to 500 but those numbers were given by like the settlers oh yeah yeah Yeah. we we killed a couple hundred of them yeah we we gave up because we felt bad we felt bad about murdering the emus more likely they killed about like five dozen, like in the tens. Listen, rest in peace those emus, but also, oh my God. Like. It's <laughs> not even a dent. No. Even if it was 500, that's barely a dent. Yeah. That's not even one twentieth, because I math. Also, I don't even know, like, I don't know how many, I don't know how 
many like eggs an emu i don't know much about the uh, i feel like they production they, habits of the emus i feel like they the plant uh produce two or three eggs at a time yeah but how many times can they lay eggs a year would be my question that's true because then it's like you're you're just you're not that's a sisyphean task to try and take out all the emus the uh the emu gestation period is 46 to 56 days but i don't know how often they do that you know i'd need a break but like feasibly then it like they could have at least six bibis if all minimum minimum a year yeah good luck so those, and then, however many emos, the emu, however many, I said emos, which is, just makes, takes the story a different direction. However many emus they did manage to murder in cold blood on their own soil. I'm on the emu side. Um, oh, yeah. They could have basically replaced all of the, they could have easily replaced those emus in the three months that they were fighting. <laughs> yes, Literally. So after this, this first, um, we won't even call it, it's not a conflict. It was a war. It's not the like great the, one. the Korean conflict or whatever. What, what is the, I saw something recently where someone was talking about their grandpa who was a vet and it was like the Korean war or something. And they're like the conflict, it wasn't a war. It's just a conflict. A lot of people died in that conflict. A lot of people died. After the military withdrew, there are more, quote, emu attacks on crops. So they requested again, and they came back. The military came back and tried again, and they just, they couldn't do anything. So. Here's the thing. At that point, they had been provoked. So that was all just retribution that oh, they yeah. came back. They're like, you know what? We were just casually snacking before. Now we're vindictive. Yeah. The war in 1932 was fruitless. Um, they came back, I think, later that year or the next year. The military didn't. It didn't do anything. The farmers and settlers requested in 1934, 1943, and 1948 for military assistance, each time to be turned down. They eventually made a bounty system. So, like, you got paid money if you brought in an emu and that actually did the trick so you got like crocodile dundee but you got like emu dundee you know people just going out i don't know what crocodile dundee is i never actually watched that movie um, but you first of all how dare you watch that movie please i know i'm a, i truly am ashamed but secondly for those who do know the movie just a shot for shot remake but he he made his name with emus yeah so they won. The emus won. Uh, it's their land. They know it best. They, uh, they're fucking, like, they look so unathletic and dumb. And that's unkind to say. That's judging an emu by its feathers. But these are highly organized, very fast, fighting, crop fighting machines. And uh, the colonizers fucking lost. They did. Listen, and they stick together, which is what I love. 
colonization, colonizers, you just can't beat evolution. <laughs> adapt or die, and they really didn't need to adapt. They just didn't die. <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, so, so afterwards, they're, um, like you said, it's a popular internet meme. It's going around on Instagram, TikTok, history, memes, whatever. Um, there was a musical in 2019 that was kind of workshopped. And then uh, apparently there's a movie with Rob Schneider coming out in 2022, this, this year. I don't know that that is a thing still. I haven't heard of it. But it, it has kind of taken the world by storm. And... And it should. This is underrepresented history, and the emus deserve their story to be the told. The emus deserve their flowers, and those flowers are the crops that they will take for themselves. <laughs> oh my goodness! I'm gonna pivot into my story because I'm just so Get excited. Right on into the point it. where you realize why I lost my mind. <laughs> my story. I'm gonna. I'm gonna get in that. I'm gonna get in our history machine. And I'm going to dial the clock back a little bit so that I'm starting us just before World War I. So Which would be, what years are World War One again? 1914. Two. Nin did we say 1918? Yeah, there it is. Cass, we have to take an ad break. Fair enough. We're a history podcast, so we have to infuse this interlude with some tasty, tasty facts. Okay. Oh, tasty facts. Like brewing beer using hops became a standard practice as a result of early drug laws in Bohemia. Ah, yes. The Reinheitsgebot Law of 1560. I remember it well. Now that hops are no longer a legally required ingredient in beer, welcome to the future, our friends at Herbiary have taken it upon themselves to release your taste buds from the cages of convention. They've experimented with over 200 different herbs and botanicals, building on the rich tradition and fermented folklore of hop-free brewing. Learn more about their delicious section of brews and where to find them at herbiary.com. So, I'm in, we're in 1910, a little bit before then. Uh, we're in North America, a little bit of context, just about, you know, the, where we stand in the American dream at this point. In 1910, America was losing its sparkle. We had just spent the last like century uh, doing all of the unthinkable things as we murdered a lot of indigenous peoples, but conquered the wilderness and frontier. Uh, we'd, we'd fucking dynamited fish out of rivers. We were dredging waterways. We were building towns. We were ripping precious metals from the sides of mountains. And there, we'd reached our limits. We'd reached California. There was no frontier left. And we just kind of started drifting listlessly, um, at least in the case of like the super masculine, macho, outdoorsy dudes, uh, like one of the stars of the, our story today, Frederick Russell Burnham, who was himself a frontiersman but more than just a frontiersman, he was a soldier and he was an infamous scout. So if you don't know what a scout is, a scout is that kind of breed of soldier that's kind of part navigator, part like saboteur, uh, and all like a slinky, sneaky snack. And Burnham was really fucking good at it. In fact, every time he tried to like leave scouting to like settle down, quote unquote, or do literally anything else, he'd get bored and then get called back into 
war into service because he was so good at what he did he'd like abandon everything he was doing and leave immediately it's that um, slinky lifestyle yeah he just like Some of us just gotta live that slink life he just like wanted to be one with the wilderness he was described as a man whose senses and abilities approached that of a wild predator a man totally without fear the most complete human being who ever lived a man who knows the cruel edges of war he was the inspiration for Indiana Jones, to put it simply. Why do I feel like he wrote all of those things about himself? He didn't. He actually, <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. He's actually very humble. And he wrote uh, two versions of a prologue for his memoirs. And he labeled one of them boastful and one of them non-boastful. And quite frankly, neither one of them were really boastful. And at the end oh. of the one that he labeled boastful, he literally says, like, if you found this to be boastful, I apologize. Oh, good. I love just to give you like a flavor of Burnham something but he but Indiana Jones was based on him yeah that's one of the one of the sources I read basically said he was the model for Indiana Jones that's awesome also was Indiana Jones just a movie or was it like a like a book like series a, I don't yeah know. I don't know. like a kind of pulp you know fiction spaghetti westerny I honestly do not know the answer to I'd that. buy it I mean I buy it like I'd believe it and also I would pay for the series mm-hmm um continue some of the things that burnham did uh after running away at like 15 by stealing a canoe and going down the mississippi and being trained with an old scout like um, you do so he run he ran out ran off to africa for the first time at 32 and then again at 39 here are some things that he has done hid for two days and nights in an aardvark hole floated down a river disguised as a dead cow <laughs> what? um Blew up strategic railways, etc. And this is a personal favorite. He evaded capture at one point by striking up. This is during the Second Boer War. Um, he evaded capture by striking up a conversation about baptism and then uh, reciting poetry because the Boers had been given index cards describing him because he was like, they were like, you have to get catch this guy. He's the British Army's scout. Uh, and the index cards described him as a ruthless, godless, illiterate rogue. So while he, after he'd been captured, he just like struck up a theological conversation about baptism and then oh later recited poetry so that they like, were like, this they can't be the guy. So they didn't realize that that's who they had and he was able to sneak away. Also, could you imagine him like, it, this is such like a mean girl's high school. Like I dropped my mean note on the floor and he picks it up and is like, oh. They think I'm a ruthless, godless, yeah, heathen. I'll show them. Bitches. <laughs> uh, he also, after uh, after leaving Africa again because he was like grossly injured, he wrote and published an article called "Transplanting African Animals," and this article argued that many of the animals of Africa could easily be introduced to the American South Southwest. Then let me introduce you to another man. His name was Captain Fritz Duquesne. And Great name. when Burnham was in Africa acting as a scout for the British during the Second Boer War, War, Duquesne was the scout for the Boer army. So they were pitted enemies, quite literally their directives involved, among other things, uh, finding each other and killing each other. Duquesne is a little bit harder to pin down because one source says that he like didn't even know his own age. He was uh, 
he's described as having black hair, or maybe it was brown. His eyes were brown, hazel, or blue. The best article on this entire topic that I read eventually decided that he's a pathological liar uh, and that even his clipped British accent may have been fake. What we think we know about Duquesne is that he grew up in South Africa, went to school in Europe, returned to Africa to fight against the British. Lots of other things happened in the midst of that. Uh, some things that Duquesne allegedly did. Escaped from prison at least twice. One time digging through a prison wall with a spoon. If I read it correctly, the wall later collapsed on him because he had uh, compromised oh, his structural integrity. <laughs> uh, another time he was being sent to uh, prison in like Lisbon and he seduced the jailer's daughter and got out. So is Captain Jack Sparrow based on Duquesne then? <laughs> it's like we got Indiana Jones and Jack Sparrow. We don't really know if any of these facts are true or not, but apparently <laughs> at some point he came back to his family's homestead and had discovered a la Gladiator that the British, that the British had completely like decimated his land and he, like, they had, like, hung his uncle from a telegraph pole, raped his sister, and then shot her, tied up and carried his mother off to a concentration camp. And when he found his mother near death, so he didn't wasn't able, I don't think, to, like, save her, uh, he pledged to her that he would kill a hundred Englishmen for every drop of blood in her body. Okay, I, yeah. I need, I need to say it now. Mm-hmm. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, loyal to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Yeah, so basically Duquesne. Okay, so got it. Not Jack Sparrow, Maximus. Yes. Got it. Uh, cool. Just want to get that clear. anything I just told you about Duquesne <laughs> is true or not, which you'll understand more later, what is true is that at some point, like he was consumed with rage for the British and like all of this radicalized him. He finds his way to America where Burnham is and both find each other standing in front of a congressional committee in 1910, testifying on behalf of an innovative animal project, one with momentum, one with the support of former president Teddy Roosevelt, one that they all notoriously who loved animals who and killing them and killing them yes uh an animal project that all of the people speaking on behalf of saw as so obvious practical and necessary that was the plan to import hippopotamuses from africa set them in the swamplands along the gulf coast and raise them for food stop it <laughs> Stop it! Why didn't this happen? Like, that's a horrible idea. I get an ecosystem, whatever, but do you know who Fiona the hippo is? I'm familiar. <laughs> I love her. I want her. I want hippos in America. Uh, we almost had them. There was enough support. I will... The reason... Okay, everyone kind of on this bill had like a. <laughs> oh my god, the emu war and the great, right? the great hippo migration, uh, migration expansion. <laughs> you know um, what? Hippos would have been the colonizers. I'm just saying. So hippos were only like one animal on the list, but the hippos were kind of the the bill was eventually known as the hippo bill because the hippos were specifically positioned to replace or supplement 
cows and beef. So America at this point had a meat shortage and we're not even to the Great Depression yet. We're not even to the First World War yet. We have this horrible meat shortage, probably because all of the ranchers and everyone, all the frontiersmen just be shooting everything on their property. Everything's over hunted. Nobody is taking care of the land and letting it repopulate itself and refresh itself the way that the indigenous people did. Also, beef prices are astronomical. Rangeland had been ruined by overgrazing. Cities uh, were booming and populations in general were growing. We had a lot of immigration during this time. So there's just more mouths to feed, but we had been, the population of cows had been slowly dwindling. And really the only livestock were the same livestock we have now, all of which we pretty much brought here. A lot of which at least we brought here from England. So bringing animals in from outside of our borders to raise as livestock was not a new idea. Like that's how chickens got here. So the answer to the meat question was obvious. The answer was an armada of free range hippos, which would be provide easily a million tons of meat a year. Burnham and Duquesne, who had spent a lot of time in Africa are like, this is normal. You just don't think it's normal because your neighbor's not eating a hippo because you don't have hippos here. But you don't know what they are. Yeah. Everyone, like, we ate hippos all the time. It's quite good. The brisket is delicious. <laughs> um, so they were going to ranch them in the bayous of Florida, Mississippi, and Louisiana. The, it was said that the uh, environment was actually kind of perfect for them. And the reason that uh, another gentleman was on board with it and the congressman who basically helped pitch this bill from Louisiana was super on board with it is because, do you know what a water hyacinth is? A flower? It's a flower. It's an aquatic flower. It's beautiful. It is incredibly invasive. And a few had made their way to America as part of, I think, like, a, an exchange of goods and graces from Japan, and they repro- reproduce asexually, so they were just clogging everything. Uh, a brief aside, last summer, Justin and I got like a little um, water planter, not very big, like imagine this thing is the size of like a large salad bowl, like serving salad bowl. And we bought water hyacinth for it, and I, bought three water hyacinth because I was like, that's how many will fit in this bowl. And within like a couple of weeks, this bowl was overflowing with water hyacinth. They just spread like fucking crazy. Uh, And apparently though, water hyacinth, pretty delicious for hippos and the hippos would eat them. And hippos apparently pretty delicious to people. Uh, the New York Times called them lake cow bacon, which just, I guess if you're trying to explain a hippo to somebody who's never seen or heard of a hippo before, makes sense. Lake cow? <laughs> sure. 
Did you know that Elvis once showed up to the White House high as a kite with a bunch of guns? Did you know that Eleanor Roosevelt once had a romantic relationship with a lesbian reporter? Hi, we're Stephanie. And Tux. From Beyond Reproach, a comedic history podcast where we talk about political scandals like how FDR's grandfather made the family fortune smuggling dope. And messy government officials like President Johnson, who named his dick Jumbo and would wave it around at people on Capitol Hill. Gross. <laughs> and we do it all while drinking period-appropriate historic cocktails, like JFK's favorite, the Lime Daiquiri. We are not historians, we're just a couple of drunks who never shut up and love history. We hope you'll join us on Beyond Reproach for some big facts, good laughs, a little bit of swearing, a lot of drinking, and a real good time. You can find Beyond Reproach wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Four years before the bill was introduced, Burnham had tried to jumpstart a similar African uh, animal project in Washington. His pitch called for 30 varieties of edible antelope, as well as giraffes and other animals to be introduced to the American Southwest. At a point, we had camels. They tried to do camels in the deserts of America because camels are better than horses in that environment. They were like, mm. for soldiers, they'll be better. And they were, but the soldiers who were assigned horses kept making fun of the soldiers who were assigned camels. So the soldiers who were assigned camels, like, uh, just abandoned their camels. Oh, no! Um, That's called peer pressure. Yeah. Uh, and then the uh, reindeer in Alaska were introduced to Alaska from Russia. So, again, even at this point, even, like, not even thinking about average livestock, bringing in animals from elsewhere, a common thing. Uh, when properly vetted and considered, not a bad thing. Burnham uh, failed to get really any traction four years before this on his efforts, despite having Roosevelt, who was at that point president, uh, his support. And then in 1909, uh, Duquesne found himself sitting in the White House with Roosevelt because Roosevelt wanted to go on a big game hunting expedition to East Africa upon leaving his office. And he, Duquesne's uh, background and history in the area had caught his eye. And so he like wanted to converse with him about his plans. But it isn't until March 1910 that Burnham joins forces with Congressman Robert Broussard, a Democrat from Louisiana, who, hitched, who had latched onto the hippo idea specifically because of the water hyacinth issue with his constituents. So he saw it as a solution for them. It was Bill H.R. 23261, and it was to appropriate $250,000 to bring in these animals. That is, don't worry, I got you, Cass, $7.8 million, roughly, of today's dollar-dollar bills. Thank you for converting. You're welcome. Also, what a, what a sexy bill name. Can you read that again for H -R -2 -3 -2 -6 -1. me? HR 23261. Oh, baby, let me get behind that. 23261. Uh, <laughs> we're just everything comes back to Russell Crowe on this episode. 8675309. So Burnham walks Congress through the logistics. He's like, this Fucking common sense, guys. Duquesne walks, he's he's there speaking to the committee as like an expert on hippos and his knowledge on hippos. He parries all the skeptical questions. And after the hearing, it seemed like it was just a matter of time before the America got her hippos because they had momentum. The press was positive. 
They created, uh, they knew that they weren't going to get a decision in that session of Congress, so they created a lobbying organization, um, New Food Supply Society, to kind of keep pressure on Congress for the next session. And you Natalie, what happened? Well, wouldn't you know, we didn't get hippos. <laughs> Spoiler alert. There's a secret hippo society among us that we don't know about. I they mean, brought them over, but... it's a, They're secret, they're living... Uh, Joe Exotic is hiding them from us. He would. Um, <laughs> basically, the society kind of didn't really work that well together. There wound up being a fourth man. His name, he was an inventor and a writer named Elliot Lord. And, like, he didn't jive with Burnham because Burnham was, like, really cautious and, like, polished and poised. And Lord was, like, very rash. Uh, Broussard was distracted by other like Congress business and projects in his uh, region. Burnham was on like a speaking tour to try and keep promoting this. Duquesne, Duquesne was actually really productive. Uh, it was pretty clear he wanted credit for this idea. So when the New York World published an article about bringing hippos over and credited it to none of those guys, uh, Duquesne like went off. The idea was never exactly officially defeated in any specific way. It just kind of evaporated slowly over time. You know, they just lost touch, you know? Yeah, that, hey, that happens. So we didn't get hippos. Eventually, America worked through the meat problem and they solved it on the land side uh, with industrial agriculture instead of bringing animals in who could make unproductive landscapes productive again, or that were productive to these animals, we just found a way to turn those landscapes into pasture and just turn everything into pasture and pack more of the same five animals onto them. And as for the water hyacinths... They going strong? The colonizers didn't get them? The state of Louisiana... I mean, in this situation, the water hyacinths are the colonizers, actually. Uh, <laughs> Today, still, the state of Louisiana alone spends roughly $200 million a year spraying herbicides to try and beat back the water hyacinth still. What? So, had we gone the hippo route, uh, our ecosystem would have stayed more diverse. Our, our uh, like, meat production would have been more diverse because hippos were too big to ship to Chicago and Chicago had the stockyard monopoly. So they would have had to yeah. put a bunch of little stockyards uh, in job creation. Yeah. Well, and also like it would have created a like local food system mm -hmm. instead of everything having to come into and come out of Chicago. Yeah. Um, and then just a fun, just a fun little extra tidbit. And I just, just because I have to leave you with a little extra in intrigue. Seven years after Hippogate, <laughs> Hippogate. <laughs> there's an explosion at a warehouse in Brooklyn that, for whatever reason, makes New York, the New York Police Department's head of their bomb squad ask his detectives to investigate a certain Captain Claude Stoughton. They find his apartment, and what they find there are photos of him dressed in the uniforms of multiple countries with varying hairstyles and beard styles, newspaper articles detailing practically every explosion since World War I began, because this was 
just this was in 1917 that this was happening. A letter of introduction from a diplomat in Nicaragua describing Stoughton as a man who had, quote, in many circumstances rendered notable services to our good German cause, end quote, but that didn't refer to him as Stoughton. They referred to him by a different name because they also found a program for a lecture that identified Stoughton as Fritz Duquesne. <gasps> so what? part of the reason we don't know if anything we know about Duquesne is true is because also straight up con man. <laughs> What? You get hippos. You get you intrigue. Get... You get Indiana Jones. Oh my God, this is National Treasure 4. We've got it all. And so this okay. is why I lost my shit when you, of all topics, brought me <laughs> the Great Emu War because I also was bringing you animals. Hippo gate. <laughs> you give me an emo, emu, an emo <laughs> An emo emu war? I give you a hungry hippo game. <laughs> okay, I want to break this down a little bit because I fucking love hippos. Like, I love them so much. I love cows. I have become a big, fierce proponent of cow cuteness. I worked at um, a place called Living History Farms in Des Moines, Iowa, and people would, like, dress up in old timies, and they had their little huts, and they would plow with oxen, and they'd do all this stuff, and people can come in and see how they lived. And I knew the guy that drove the oxen. He could turn those fuckers on a dime. He was so good. And so I got to, like hang out with the ox and be friends with them. And they are such beautiful, sweet creatures. Mm -hmm. The biggest eyes and luscious eyelids. I love them. They're so sweet. And so learning more about environmental issues, climate issues, and, and farming commercialism and the shitty things we do to cows, I don't want the hippos here. Yeah. I don't want them because you know they're you too good know for us. They're too good for us. You know, if they had been integrated into our society, that we would be farming them now. Like, well, yes, that, I mean, that was, so. yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yes, that was like the, the plan. idea was free range hippos, but yes, ruined like, everything. You know, yeah, like um, cattle production in the 10s and the 20s and 30s is so different than what it is now. I couldn't do that to them. Capitalism I don't want that for them. ruins the party. Just like that's <sighs> what finally did the emus in, was them putting a bounty on them. That's capitalism. That's capitalism, baby. And if we had gotten the hippos, capitalism would have spoiled that too. I hate when people like harp on, you know, it's like, oh, America's a democracy. No. America is capitalism. Yeah. Shrouded by faint, faint essences of democracy it's like a whisper but ghost of so, democracy so having done the research i i throw this to you and not not thinking about where we are now and what um animal production and distribution and not what that is now but imagine we're in the 10s 20s whatever also with hindsight 
do you think all of those reasons like they're good animals to integrate here like it does make sense do you think it would have been a good idea do you think part of it was good old t rose loves a good exotic animal to hunt i am so wary of bringing in you know non-native species because it it throws the whole ecosystem off and then you have to bring in more to counteract that yeah, and then it's, it's just it this constant like, fucking they're gonna with nature. Solve the water hyacinth problem but then what's going to solve the hippo problem exactly so i don't have i can't i think we can all hypothesize an answer to that i will say that if you want to read more about if you want to read more actual history about this and also just honestly more about Natalie, birding. this is actual. Well, but I mean, history. if you want more about Burnham and Duquesne, <laughs> because I want more about hippos, but if you want more about Burnham and Duquesne and honestly, yeah. just like the hippo logistics, um, there's an article called American Hippopotamus by John Muallam that is beautifully written, like the opening of it read like he was bringing me in to a novel and I was like on the edge of my seat and I knew where it was going. And he does that. This story does a much deeper dive into Burnham's journey and the I like idea of the hippopotamus, but also Burnham's journey and Duquesne's journey. So especially Duquesne hijinks, um, big recommend. But the reason that I, found this story is because of friend of the podcast, Alex D. Virgilio, lent me a book. And I always like to talk about books. This is why we shouldn't let women read. This is why we won't shut up about it. <laughs> he lent me a book that he said, I think you'll really like this book. And it's a novel. It's fiction. It's called American Hippo. It's by Sarah Gailey. I have, I'm only 20% of the way into it and I love it. Um, I read the prologue out loud to my husband and then also to my coworkers the next day <laughs> because what she does is she takes this idea of hippo ranching and she brings it to where you want to bring the hippo ranch, which is cowboy times. Wait, so is it nonfiction? It's fiction. American. Oh, sorry, that's what I mean, fiction. American hippo is fiction. Uh, it's basically a cowboy romp heist and the answer to the are the hippos going to be a problem question in that, because it's cowboys riding hippos, first of Stop all. Stop it! And it's like ranchers ranching specific breeds of hippos. And the main character rancher or ex-rancher outlaw guy gets hired by the government to clear out the feral hippo infestation <laughs> that is blocking the Mississippi River and that the casino boats, like the river boats, are throwing anyone caught cheating into the water because, again, hippos, very dangerous. So dangerous. Maybe not, like, very deadly. Yeah, sorry. Well, I, don't I, know, mean, yeah. I don't know if, but it's like they're a huge predator and they're huge surprisingly yeah. fast in water and hippos are kind of like a joke of boom i'm a hippo but damn are they fighters yeah and they're still mad about that hippo in a tutu from uh <laughs> fantasia from fantasia they're i'm sorry that is still the best uh little 
snippet of that of Fantasia. So sketch, if you will. Sarah Gailey, an American hippo, uh, maybe answers the question of by saying, "Yeah, um, maybe, maybe, maybe too many hippo, not not good for business." But team, too many. But who who am I to say too many emu? I don't care. It's their land. I just I just want to say thank you for bringing this into my life. I don't I don't think you understand how much this has changed me. Well, thank you for bringing yeah, that I have two periods in my life before hippos and after hippos. <laughs> and I don't I don't know. You can never go back. I can I can never I can never be the same cast now, knowing that we could have, could have had hippos. Mississippi hippos. Mississippos. Can you just think about every story that the Mississippi River or that the Gulf uh, or just like the bayous are a central part to it? Okay, you got that in your mind? Like you got some Tom Sawyer? Take that story, add hippos. Tom Sawyer, hippos. I'm, I'm uh, trying to think of more American Midwest. My aunt a hippo, my Antonia with hippos. Water boy, but with hippos. <laughs> we could be we could be here talking about how DJ Rip grew up surrounded by hippos at the oh annual Center in Florida. This is what because it's so goofy in our American minds. Like hippos are so exotic. I mean, I mean, it's not even like they're not in you know the United States. They're not on our continent at all. Not our landmass. Like I said, in, in though in 1910, like wilder shit, like everything that was happening was wild. Yeah. Like every every time somebody came up with a solution to a problem, it was like somebody in the group was like, "We can't do that," and then yeah. we do it. So, and it's wild, and like just knowing how outlandish hippos seem to us now. And thinking that it would it'd just be like a cow, like, oh, fuck, I'm going through Nebraska and there's all the hip. It, they wouldn't be in Nebraska. I just drive through Nebraska a lot. And I see a lot of cows. Do you think that the hindsight of this, like, whatever it was called, the food, social food society or whatever it was called, um, the guys who created this bill, do you think that post-World War One, when they saw the great emu war happening, they were like, dodge that bullet definitely definitely oh i forgot to mention one thing during the the great emu war um not that other one not the other one i found we'll put this on our youtube channel where we kind of put a bunch of of videos that correspond to things we've talked about maybe we can get it on our instagram there is a like world war one propaganda video you know when they're like well, these are our boys on the front, and they seem to be doing great, and yada da da about the emu war. And it is propaganda. They're like, emus seem to be infesting the Western Australian frontier, but don't worry, we've got our boys on it. They seem to be killing all of these emus. Look, we got one here. And, like, make it seem like, support our boys you guys everything's fine the emu things getting taken care of when really they were fucking losing it's sublime I it's so beautiful <laughs> listeners um please please 
go check out our YouTube. Uh, look at our Instagram or in the, the in the doobly doo we'll have we'll have some visual aids. We're at SharedPod on, on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I don't know that I can answer this question, so I would put it to you guys, our listeners, to tell us who you would cast <gasps> as Burnham, who's the scout who wasn't a con man, and Duquesne, the con man. I'll tell you who in my head I have as Burnham. I have Pedro Pascal, because <laughs> I feel like you'd be great at that. Um, but I don't have anyone in mind for Duquesne. I feel like it needs to be somebody with like a sharper, they were always, they were in their thirties and I feel like Duquesne needs to have like a sharper. Can I just say every time you say Danny Duquesne, I think of Denny Duquette. So like I was, I had that in my brain, just whole but time. he's, he wouldn't be it. Yeah. So Duquesne is like the, the con man, right? Mm -hmm. This will be good. We'll, f we'll figure this out. Yeah. I'll leave it with you guys because I didn't think of one beforehand. So, um, Also, I do want to mention one thing. This did remind me of a film from the, I think it was the 20s, 30s. Oh, fuck. It's a, it, 1966. It's a Western with Maureen O'Hara and Jimmy Stewart. And it's called The Rare Breed. And it's about Maureen O'Hara, who is this, you know, famous Irish actress. It, in real life, not her character. Mm -hmm. um, she's from England, and she's a, I don't know, a ranch, rancher, daughter of a rancher, and they're expanding the West and whatnot, and the, their cattle ranges and all of that, and she's trying to integrate Hereford cows to the United States, which just sounds so nerdy, but it reminds me so much of the hippo thing, of like, Herefords are not, you know, unusual. They were integrated in, you know, the 1800s. We have them all the time here now. And it's just another specific breed of cows, whatever. But at the time, it was kind of like a hippo, you know? It's like, we're bringing this English breed of whatever, and we had to overcome this, yada-da, to get them integrated, and... Now we have more diversity of food, which is just another kind of beef. But I love Maureen O'Hara and Jimmy Stewart, and I haven't seen it forever, but I remember really enjoying it. But that just made me think of the hippo thing of like something that was, and like you said, everything back then was so new and so undone, exotic. And could you imagine if we were talking about this and they're like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, hippos. I have it. I have hippo burgers every Fourth of July. That's not weird at all. Could you imagine if hippos were normal here? I can't. Ah, uh, sorry. I'm. You're gonna be really sick of this hippo thing. Blew my fucking mind, Natalie. Uh, thanks for stalling for time for me so that I could think about who I would maybe cast in. Uh, oh yeah, as uh, Duquesne. And you know what? I th I think Sam Rockwell. I think I could do Sam Rockwell. Although I want somebody with a more with more angular features. Oh, Sam Rockwell, fifteen years ago, like Char Charlie's Angels, Sam Rockwell would have been perfect. Okay, just because he was a little bit younger, and he had. I know what you mean about angular. Yeah, I mean, kind of but pointy. in that case, just give me Crispin Glover. Oh yeah, 
I was like, thanks for reminding me, Crispin Glover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're welcome. There you go. Great. Oh my God. Thank you. Um, so my discovery this week is this book, because other than that, uh, my I live in my office and my discovery is that apparently I can live and sleep for eight weeks on an air mattress and only go slightly insane. Um, that's where I'm at mentally. So I really needed the general shenaniganery. Uh, my discovery this week has been the TV series Alone. I'm doing a bike ride at the end of July. So by the time this has come out, it may have already happened. It is a week-long bike ride across Iowa, and we camp. So I needed to get a little extra bit of camping gear. We got a new tent and whatnot. And I've just started farming in my backyard and my farming. I mean, I have like four tomato plants. And I've always been intrigued by like frontiersy, you know, primitive, what you know, being able to live off the land and whatnot. And so I found this TV show alone, which has been out for, I don't know, forever, um, where they send people on an island in Vancouver alone and they have to just live. And it's like Castaway. We are castaways. And I'm obsessed. So I've been very, um, you know, like I want to get into whittling now. I'm like, Jesus Christ, Cass, I don't need any more obscure hobbies. No, please take up whittling. Please. I want to take up whittling and I want to make a friction fire with a bow. <gasps> I want, um, my kickboxing coach is also like, is trained in a lot of different martial arts. And so the other day I was, don't even know what I was talking about, but he asked me if I wanted to learn sticks and knives is how he phrased it. And I was like, yes. Yes. And then later he's... he was like, oh, we could do bow staff too. And I was like, yes, yes, please. Stop asking these stupid questions and just bring me the knives and the staff. Then you and I can get in a time machine and <laughs> we can have a farm and a ranch of emus and hippos <gasps> and we can live off the land. Natalie, I want a movie. No, I want a reality show of you and I living off the land on our emu and hippo farm. Hippo farm. Sign me up. Sign me um me up i'll start practicing my fires yes you guys can get updates on our farming at shared pod like i mentioned before please write to us drop us some dms uh email us any questions corrections or suggestions of what other livestock and wildlife and agriculture we should incorporate in this new farming project y'all our our topics run the gamut i i'm not gonna lie i i don't know if i'm gonna do them all but i got a lot of heavy topics on my list of things to do so if you want to throw some general shenaniganry at us or if some heavy shit i would have never known about this hippo shenanigan if it wasn't for a listener who happens to also be a friend, but the reason he recommended this book was because he's a listener. So just, just like how we ask our guests to do homework. We're asking you to do homework. We're asking you to do homework. Give, tell us what you want to hear. Give us those suggestions. Send those to sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com or fill out the form on our website, which I think is sharedhistorypodcast.com. Um, you're great. Believe in yourself. You too can defeat the colonizers 
we're all emus here. <laughs> Until next time. Share, Share you later.